Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is my last time serving as host of The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and the three gray hairs that disqualify me from Lisa Laflamme's job. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. The Prime Minister, who appeared to be hiding a bagel in his desk. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume. I heard her say a word that I know is distinctly unparliamentary. The word was F-A-R-T. Let's just say this is a little bit awkward. She's drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water, out of uh, when we have water bottles, uh, out of a plastic, uh, sorry, sorry. Sorry, and I'm really sorry. Today, if you failed the last election, just run for another level of government. Apparently, career politicians are the thing to be or try to be. And why can't our various levels of government just work together? Hello? Teamwork makes the dream work. Did no one tell them? Joining me this week, she was on my first episode of the show from Canada Land, Le Devoir and the Gazette, Emily Nicola. Welcome back. Thank you. It's been long, like way too long. Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief of The Hub and big sports fan is here. We missed you, dude. (laughs) Hey, great to be back. And our favorite Ottawa nerd and ranter also returns tech, money and innovation policy reporter from The Logic, Murad Hamadi. Hey. I saw you like twice last week. (laughs) It's true. But you haven't been on the show, so. That's true. So one last time, let's get into it. Okay, imagine this. It's the year 2030 and Pierre Polyev is still blowing up your timelines, TV screens, and political governance. He's been a member of parliament for 18 years, so it's not an impossible thought. Canada has a lot of career politicians, folks who have done little other than run or stay in political office. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing if those politicians are keeping their promise to better their communities, but that's a big if. Lately, we've seen several examples of failed politicians deciding to just enter politics a different way. I'm thinking of Stephen Del Duca, who didn't win his riding, or the 2022 Ontario election for the Ontario Liberals as leader. And he's now running for the mayor of Vaughan. Andrea Horwath, the former Ontario NDP leader, is also doing the same, just running for mayor in Hamilton. And it's not just them. There are so many examples of career politicians that actually blows my mind. Jim Bradley, MPP for St. Catharines from 1977 to 2018, is currently a regional councillor up for re-election. He's been serving for 41 years. George Krantz, mayor of Milton since 1980, who's running for re-election again. You guys, he will be almost 90 at the end of this term. Michael Bissonnette, mayor of St. Leonard in Montreal since 1978, has held elected office since then without any interruption. And he's tried to run for federal office twice before and failed. Stu Young, mayor of Langford, B.C. since 1993. Some say he transformed the suburb into the small city it is today, but others aren't so happy with the rapid growth. That sounds like another mayor from my hometown, Hazel McCallion, mayor of Mississauga for 36 years, largely responsible for turning a farmland town into an urban sprawl. I could literally go on and on. But here's my question. Are career politicians holding back the political system from evolving to best serve the big issues of today? Stuart? You've kind of scrambled my point here because I do want to make the point that a gerontocracy is bad. 
Having all of our politicians be really old, I think, is hurting how we're not future-oriented anymore. Um, that's partly due to the fact that the short-termism of politics, but also that we just have older people running things. Although we're not quite as bad in Canada as they are in the U.S. So with that caveat, I will say that career politicians aren't necessarily a bad thing. And I think maybe if you're too young to remember the incredible political career of Michael Ignatieff, who came to Canada like with fanfare, like he was this brilliant academic, he was going to come in here, show Stephen Harper who's boss, and he sucked at politics. He will admit to this in his own book, he just couldn't do it. And the problem with politics is a bit like writing, where if it's done well, it's hard to notice what was actually done, because it's sort of like easy. It's easy to read, it's easy to watch, and when it's done poorly, it's miserable for both the viewer and the person doing it. So I, I think there's that element of it is that there's kind of a weird skill set involved in politics. and. You know, we have Pierre Polyev who's been around a while. Justin Trudeau, I would also kind of characterize as sort of being a career politician because he grew up in a political house. Like his dad was prime minister. He was ingesting all of this stuff. And he knew something that nobody else knew in 2013, 2014, 2015, which is that the political winds were changing in ways that weren't totally apparent to the pundits and other politicians. Tom Mulcair thought he had to be like Captain Balanced Budget to win in 2015. And Justin Trudeau said, no, I'm going to run deficits. I'm going to legalize weed and I'm going to do electoral reform. Wink. And then that's how he got elected. And I think that skill set is something that not a lot of people have. I certainly don't have it. Most of the people who are commenting on politics don't have it or they would be doing you know, better things than that. And Pierre Polyev definitely has it. He knows what's going on right now. And he has been able to attract thousands of people to rallies in a way that we just haven't seen before. And these skills are rare. Yes, I agree with you, Stuart, that parties need to recruit fresh candidates that can, you know, enter the political system and shake it up a little bit and fill it with new ideas and, and new solutions and so forth. But my concern also is just if a politician can stay in power for 30 years and just keep getting reelected, reelected with like the bare minimum votes that they need to get reelected and reelected, which is what we were seeing lately, then isn't that in and of itself a barrier to entry? And doesn't that in and of itself hold the political system back? And isn't that then a case for term limits? I don't know. Am I overreacting, Murad, or do you agree or disagree? I think I want to point to two problems within the system, right? So zoom out for a second from the actual people who are elected. There is a permanent class of staffers and political people in this country. It's not unique to this country by any means, but I would point you in the direction of Andrew Scheer, who after his time on Parliament Hill went to cosplay and being an insurance broker for the minimum amount of time necessary for a seat to open up, but not apparently the minimum amount of time necessary to actually get his license, uh, as we discovered during the last election. And he did that who knows why? Uh, someday maybe he'll tell us. But there is this sort of idea of like, oh, no, I've worked in the real world. Uh, this is not the thing I've done all my life. But you look back, like Stephen Harper, effectively career politician, worked in and around politics his whole life, Pierre Polyev, Andrew Scheer. Uh, and that's not to pick on the conservatives. There are plenty of people on the other side of the aisle. There are liberal MPs today who have worked as staffers and then ran for office and 
The same is true of the NDP. Farama, you and I went to the University of Toronto with a bunch of people who are now federal staffers, and they were campus liberals, you know, and they work for ministers' offices now. Some of them are really nice people. Some of them are pretty good at their jobs, but it's an <laughs> ecosystem. And it's not just about the individuals who hold office. It's a whole ecosystem. Like this whole country is like six families, uh, and they're all connected <laughs> to each other. And I think focusing on the individual elected officials sort of obscures that pipeline, that that system that you have. The other thing is, I think there's a distinctly different problem in the people who jump from level to level to level just needing to find something to do. So it is apparently a myth that sharks need to keep swimming uh, or they run out of oxygen and die. But there are politicians who seem to live their lives as if that's true. Like the canonical example of this is Glenn Murray. And I just want to read out to you Glenn Murray's political career. So Glenn Murray was a Winnipeg councillor, Winnipeg mayor, a failed federal liberal candidate in Manitoba an Ontario Liberal MPP, an Ontario Liberal Minister, a failed Ontario Liberal leadership candidate, a failed federal Green leadership candidate, and he is now running for Winnipeg mayor. He hasn't just done every level of government, he's done it in two completely different provinces. And so there's an example of a man, like I would kill for that kind of confidence, man. <laughs> to go through life like that. And, you know, Glenn Murray's had difficulties in his life. I'm not saying it's been easy, but Patrick Brown being another example of this. I have never been that confident about anything in my life as Patrick Brown is that voters need him to hold elected office. Yes. And I think that is a problem because it makes sense to have people move from levels of government to other levels of government. Those are valuable skills. What I don't think we should countenance as a sort of like society is that on the basis of frankly, primarily name recognition. You have people jumping from level of government to level of government being elected by the same pool of voters, or in some cases, pools of voters in different provinces, merely on the basis that they know the system. So I guess this is a modification to Stuart's point. I do see value in people who understand the system. I don't appreciate people who use their understanding of the political machine simply to keep themselves in office, regardless of where that office happens to be. And keep the door closed to others. I want to quickly bring up a letter from Keenan Aylwin. He was a city councillor in Barrie. And I've interviewed this guy uh, like several times. He's a young city councillor who's genuinely trying to serve his community. And he recently decided not to run for re-election because he said that the ugly side to politics is worse than he thought and that it continues to be, quote, an all-boys club. Um, I want to read a little passage, and then, Emily, I'll I'll get you to respond to everything that's been said so far. (laughs) Keenan Aylwin says, I need time to heal and to find a way to engage in community that brings joy and genuine connection. Our current formal political system does not allow for that. In fact, the way our political system works can often separate us further, divide us further, isolate us further, and that's because our isolation, our disconnection, and our separation helps the wealthy and powerful cling to their power and get what they want. To Murad's point, I think it sucks that the same people are in power all the time. I think that doesn't give us, you know, what we need as times evolve, because leaders don't necessarily evolve with the times, as we've seen countless examples of that. But I think both Stuart and Murad are also right, you know, because a friend in government recently said to me that the public service rewards the risk mitigators instead of the innovators. And I think we see that when, you know, someone like Glenn Murray or Patrick Brown or whoever else can just jump from seat to seat to seat and still get elected. They just know how to work the system. So, Emily, how do we fix this or or how do we address this in a constructive way? I think Murat's point about this is an ecosystem is what 
I think is the most important to stress when it comes to thinking about solutions. There's an entire ecosystem in this country designed to produce lifers. And I think that most of us around the table are geeks <laughs> in some ways, and I'm saying, or nerds. I'm going to say that in a very loving way. And I myself, you know, started to be in an environment with people involved in politics in different parties. When I was 19, 20, there's a, it's a small crowd of people, right? 19, 20 year old who are already interested in public affairs. And uh, in Montreal, we all ran into each other. So now I have people I was friends with in undergrad who do work in federal government. I have people who become MPs and all sorts of different parties. And the reality is that Myself, and I'm going to take it personal for a minute, myself at like, I was what, 22, I took a step back from all of that because I saw that, because I saw the culture, because I saw the old boys club, but I also saw that infrastructure of youth wings and, you know, campus clubs and whatnot was doing. And I'm not saying that everybody who came on in politics uh, and who's doing that is bad. At the contrary, I have a lot of still, you know, friends, people I respect who came out on this environment, but I just have a lot of questions. My questions are, if you've came through that pipeline, you know, at the age of 17, 18, 19, maybe your parent was also a lifer, lifelong organizer, or a former MNA or former MP or former MLA, MPP, your entire identity is built around your political party. Usually those are people whose most of their circle, their closest friends are from the political party. They've come into adulthood through a political party. They don't have any other jobs other than through the political party. When the political party is in power, they have a job with the party. When it's not, the party helps them find a job in the in private sector and they use that job in the private sector as a way to do volunteer for their party. So when there is a scandal, when there is ethical issues, they have no leverage to be able to say no to even the wildest shit that could happen in politics. When we complain when there are scandals, when there's ethical issues going on about why is it that nobody raised a flag, we need to understand how that infrastructure of, you know, that pipeline, as, as Murad was saying, is actually building people who are wired for loyalty above all else. And I wonder how is that best serving the country, especially when those people have a hand in policy. If you're going to be in advance, if you're going to be, you know, doing the, the, the prime minister's, you know, agenda, whatever. But if you're going to be a chief of staff, you're going to be a policy advisor and you've had no jobs and then you're going to run for office, you're going to be a backbencher. There is no way you're going to say something that's going to rub the leader the wrong way even if it's something that you deeply disagree with, unless you have an inner political family within that, you know, in, inside that bigger political family that he can speak of, there's a lot of tensions going on. And of course, and the last point I want to make is that this environment, this political environment in all political parties that I've been able to see from the inside a little bit is incredibly toxic. And, you know, Michelle Garner, I think when she did not run for the Conservative Party, alluded to that environment in that very long letter she wrote about why she was not running. That is still, it's the same thing with all the Liberals, provincial and federal parties. It's the same thing with the NDP and the politics with the unions. And when you've been socialized in such a toxic environment from such a young age and that all of your social, family and professional life is within such a toxic environment, 
necessarily, I wonder where you could possibly, you know, adjust. Yeah. How could that How do you not change possibly, your ways? Yeah. Like impact your moral, your moral compass. Yeah, because your allegiance is to your seat and to your party and to the structure as opposed to the people or the issues or the public service that the political system that you're part of is, is meant to serve. I want to end it on a constructive note. <laughs> That'd be good. <laughs> We have a lot of lifers, you know, up for re-election on the municipal level. And I'm sure, you know, the next provincial election, wherever it happens in this country, in the next federal election, there will be lifers who will be running up for re-election. What question, just, just a question that voters should ask these lifers to determine whether or not they deserve to continue to remain on their seat or, or whether it's time for someone new. What value do you see in who you are outside of politics? Murad? What's one thing you got wrong last term and why? And how did you fix it? Nobody fixes anything. Or how would you fix it? <laughs> and Stuart? Uh, the one that always occurs to me is what do you have left to do and why mm. haven't you been able to accomplish it until now? especially if you've been in power for 20 years. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they Don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of, organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This country has a serious federalism problem. We have many levels of government, one federal, 10 provincial, three territorial, plus like hundreds of municipal, all safeguarded by our constitution. And all of them want to do their own thing, except they can't without each other. I'm sure you all know exactly what I'm talking about. See, our local governments are creatures of the province. With their limited powers and budgets, they can't do what they want to do without strong provincial legislation or funding. The province has more power over many areas, like education and healthcare, but it needs the federal government to be fair with funding to make its own decisions. Now, each level of government wants to do its own thing with its own agenda, but it can't without help from the other. That means nothing, or very little, is getting done, and all the levels of government are pointing fingers at each other and saying it's the other's responsibility. Here's an example. The housing crisis. In the April budget, the federal government made it clear they want to do something about housing, unclear what. Shortly afterwards, Ontario Premier Doug Ford laid out a plan to build 1.5 million new homes over the next decade. But three months later, Ontario is still 500,000 homes behind on their plan. The reasons are complex. Municipalities say they need to build and grow at a level tailored to their needs and not to cater to a one-size-fits-all provincial policy. Plus, there are complex environmental considerations like where to build without destroying green spaces and creating emissions. And now, a new report from the Smart Prosperity Institute says it's unlikely Ontario will be able to catch up and meet its goals. 
Economists like Mike Moffat say provincial and municipal divisions are at fault. So while this extremely complicated three-layered mess unfolds around us, Canadians are left waiting on very pressing issues to be solved. Stuart, unpack this dysfunction for us. Why can't all these levels of government work together to solve big things like housing or climate change? Yeah, so first, I think I just want to make the point that a certain amount of dysfunction is a good thing because the political process has to kind of play out that way, where we have all these people in the country, all these people in your city, all these people in your province who have different ideas, and we have to make sure everybody has a stake. And, you know, the debate we have on, say, the carbon tax or whatever, it's sometimes hard when you feel like there's sort of an obvious technocratic solution to something, and then people just don't go along with it. And I feel like we sometimes get into that mode of saying, if only we could just jam this through or if we could just convince people that this is the right thing, when maybe the better option is to say, maybe there's a slightly less efficient version of this that will be less hated. And so the dysfunction kind of comes out of this debate that we're having. And when you talk about the jurisdictional issues, part of the problem is people. I had a friend who was a parliamentary aide in the early years of the Harper government, and he was saying his main job was to respond to people and say, actually, that's a municipal issue. Actually, that's a provincial issue. And those are all the emails that they would get and the letters they would get. So politicians have this sort of Sophie's choice of, I can either campaign in a very like jurisdictionally correct way and just say, look, if you want healthcare, like talk to Doug Ford about that, guys. Or I can say, we're going to find a way to fix the healthcare crisis just because I'm going to be in charge and we're going to fix it. And politicians will always choose the latter because you sound feckless if you say the, the first thing. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. I think some of this stuff, like on the housing crisis, it elevates to a problem that affects the whole country and that sometimes needs to be solved nationally. And I think you sometimes have to allow for that. But most of the time, it just looks more chaotic than it is, or the chaos is a function of everyone getting a say in the conversation and having different ideas of what should be done. Murad, do you agree? Do you think a dysfunction is just part of the political process and doesn't mean that it's a bad thing? Yeah, and I think there are, you know, there have been sort of pressures against centralization. To give you what seems like a trivial example, but but actually matters quite a lot to the economy, Canada doesn't have a single securities regulator across the country. So securities are like stocks, bonds, uh, financial instruments, and each province governs them independently by its own securities commission. There was an attempt through the Harper years and in the, into the early Trudeau years to set up this national regulator, and it basically fell apart a couple of years ago now because a couple of provinces that had been in decided they were out. Uh, after changes of government. The reason why this matters is if you're an investor in Ontario or Quebec or Alberta, the rules and the regulator that ensures you're basically not screwed over uh, differ by province. And it comes down to the individual enforcement of the regulator. And we're seeing a bunch of stuff now happen with like, for example, cryptocurrencies uh, and crypto investments where different provinces are treating them differently. Now this allows for like regulatory arbitrage, right? Alberta can go and say like, we're welcoming marketplaces to set up here, whereas Ontario is sort of cracking down on them, which may be a good thing in terms of like, the economy kind of finds its level. People go where they feel like they have the best opportunity to set up, but it's probably not good from a consumer protection perspective across the country. Uh, and those are conscious moves that policymakers are making to kind of 
combat things. Then there's the level of obfuscation. So like I talk about and write about immigration quite a bit. Immigration is, is a joint responsibility, but how joint it is really differs from province to province. The Quebec provincial government has a significantly larger amount of control over its immigration system than a lot of other provinces do. And Ontario and Alberta in particular right now are, are basically using Quebec as an example, as they do with so many things, to bid for greater opportunity to select immigrants out of the pool. But it, it's handy to confuse things, right? Michael Ford, whose most notable achievement is being the uh, nephew of the Premier of Ontario, is the Ontario Minister of Citizenship, which is really funny because citizenship isn't a provincial responsibility. The man has no job. Citizenship is a federal concern. And even his uncle is not asking for that to be returned. So to Stuart's point, it can be helpful sometimes when you need to create cabinet positions for family members and <laughs> or when you are trying to make a political point to obfuscate the differences between different levels of government and responsibilities. But it can also be beyond sort of a, a democratic imperative to have sort of friction within the system. It can also be a something that you wield as a competitive advantage, as we see in the case of the securities regulation. It's interesting to hear you and Stuart frame dysfunction as being, you know, maybe a good thing in certain aspects anyway of, of our lives. Because I just spent three days last week with 2,000 municipal leaders across Ontario. And a lot of the mayors and councillors that I spoke to felt that they were being stifled or held back by the lack of provincial direction or funding or legislation that gave them flexibility to actually do stuff about housing or about climate change or, or, or about the various things that they're concerned about, right? There are mayors who are waiting for the Ford government to, like, you know, allow them to make their own decisions about, you know, where to develop or what kind of development to include in their city. They want it to be sustainable, but, you know, the Ford government won't embed that in legislation, so they don't know how to go about that. There's a lot of uncertainty and ambivalence about, you know, what can an Ontario city actually do when it comes to meeting this housing directive or meeting the climate change directives from the federal government? And at the same time, we're seeing like Premier Ford and also Quebec Premier Francois Legault talk about giving more power to mayors and, and municipalities to try and spread the power more evenly so things can get done. And I'm wondering, Emily, if A, whether you agree with Stuart and Murad about dysfunction maybe being a good thing, but B, whether we do need to empower local levels of government to act independent of the higher levels of government so we can see positive change on a community level. Okay, so you're asking a lot of very, very big <laughs> questions. In theory, I'd agree with you that local government um, having more power is good. Um, if we're going to compare ourselves to cities in the U.S. or cities in Europe, Canadian cities are exceptionally tied up by the fact that constantly they're just creatures of the province, basically. So in theory, giving especially large city metropolises more power would be great. And there is a caucus of large Canadian cities who've been pushing for that in some form or another for years, trying to get special metropolis status in their provinces and whatnot to get some exceptions to that rule. However, you know, as a young Quebecer who uh, moved to Ontario for a while uh, during my 20s, what I learned is that the reason there is actually more responsibilities on municipalities in Ontario than in other provinces is because of Mike Harris reform, which the goal of which was let's download responsibilities on municipalities without giving them more money so that basically in Ontario, 
and especially the city of, I'm going to take the city of Toronto, for example, there's a lot of social programs that the city is in charge of, but in terms of taxation, their ability to levy revenues, they don't have that many options still. So basically, uh, sometimes downloading responsibilities on municipalities can just be a shortcut to privatization or actually defunding public services. And I think we need to be very careful about that. So yes, there's a lot of things that it'd be great if cities would have more responsibilities, but there's also a history in this country of putting municipalities in charge of program without giving them the means to be able to do so. And that's just a very interesting way to actually just stifle the state. That's definitely how I understand it has played out in Ontario in the 90s. So that's the first part of the question. Now, in terms of, you know, is the tensions good? Sometimes it can be good. But the first thing that actually came to mind when I was thinking about this topic is Cindy Blackstock and the Jordan's principle, right? And the Jordan's principle being that provincial and federal government should stop arguing over who should foot the bill for the well-being of indigenous children and actually just deliver services. And it took years of legal battles to get to that point. And that point is still very fragile. And that tension, the fact that sometimes the tensions means that everybody's treating some people like human beings as hot potatoes, I'm also thinking of a lot of examples coming from my home province when it comes to people who don't have status as citizens. For example, one of the key local issues in Quebec, but I think it's affecting actually Francophone communities from across the country. So universities are trying to have more international students, international researchers to fill some positions, some professors' role. There is a backlog basically happening at the federal level where when they see people coming from Francophone African country, the visa refusal rate is like 95% sometimes or 90%. And this is basically a robot doing that through an AI system that says those people are too risky. We don't know if they're going to leave the country if we let them come in. Um, So we don't want to take them. And it's really, really affecting Francophone universities and Quebec more because obviously most Francophone in the world live in Africa. Um, So if there's discrimination against African coming from the federal government, it's going to affect Francophone most. And there's real lives and there's real people who are caught, you know, being that hot potato of the federal government just being like, we don't want those people to stay. And you have local block MPs are trying to push that issue and be like, hey, we actually want those people to stay. That's why we want them to come in. Like, we need them. And I think it's important to to note that when it comes to the people who are most marginalized in this country, you know, those provincial, federal, municipal wars just ends up people stuck, pe- people not being able to access services, people not being able to know what they want to do with their lives. And I think it's important to put those faces on the issue that we're talking about. Well, this is why I wanted to talk about this, because with municipal elections also coming up across the province and us not seeing any sort of solutions to some of, you know, the big crises that we're facing, but just a lot of finger pointing. Is federalism just hurting us at this point, Stuart? Like, I understand constitutionally the need for for this kind of structure and why it exists and, and so forth. And we've talked about this on the show. But I wonder if we can evolve it to function better or coexist better. So one problem, too, is that a lot of the successes of it are very under the radar. You wouldn't necessarily see it. And, you know, one of the big problems we have in Canada, call it a problem, call it an opportunity, whatever you want to call it. We don't have a healthcare system in Canada. We have many different healthcare systems because they're all provincial. So right now, for example, the percentage population of seniors in Newfoundland is about double what it is in Saskatchewan. So 
small province like Newfoundland is going to run into sort of an aging population well ahead of Alberta and Saskatchewan. That means they need different healthcare systems and they can spend their money differently that way. But what it also means is that if you are Alberta or Saskatchewan or really any other province, you can look at what's happening in Newfoundland and you can see where they've had success and see where they've had uh, missteps. And you can learn from that the same way we would learn from like, you know, Japan uh, with an aging population there. But we wouldn't normally, we wouldn't know that, you know, like the average Canadian wouldn't be aware that, you know, Alberta is learning a lot of great lessons from Newfoundland or vice versa. So there is maybe a positive side here. The second thing is, can I just say, I'm glad Emily brought up Mike Harris because I live in a suburb in Ontario and the thing that Mike Harris did is he amalgamated all of the cities. I grew up in Halifax, the Halifax Regional Municipality is insane. It's so big. Um, it's preposterous. And th so there's a big rural urban divide on the city council there. We have the same thing in Ottawa. That creates its own issues. But what it also means is me, I, who I live in Canada, on the western suburb of Ottawa, I have a government that feels totally remote to me. People who live in Stittsville, even farther, have a government that's totally remote to them. And my understanding of conservatism is that it prizes local government and local communities. And there's this tension with another kind of conservatism, which is, they call it fiscal conservatism, but, uh, you know, there's other elements to it, too. But Mike Harris came in and did a lot of large cuts. The liberals in the 90s did it, too. I don't see a lot of focus on what was actually being cut and what the consequences were, because if you think that cutting the budget and balancing the budget is more important than really vibrant local communities, I think you're a bad conservative. You're not thinking about how these policies are actually being enacted, and you're not thinking about what it will do to people's lives. So I think that you know we need to think about these things really hard uh, and how the sort of knock-on effects happen, because it is true. It is hard to see the good side. And we, as journalists and commentators, we tend to think a lot about the bad things. But most days of my life, I think about why do I live in a suburb that's governed in Ottawa, which feels to me like a different city? And if I was in Alberta, it would be a different city and I would have my own council. Um, I think these things really matter to our day-to-day -day lives. I just wanted to share with you guys how I've learned Canadian history through, you know, a sovereigntist history teacher, because Quebec history teachers are sovereigntists until proven otherwise. And the way I've been told about like confederation and the way like constitutional order is supposed to work is that, and I think it's actually factually correct, is that originally the federal government had just a couple basic stuff, the post, the railroad, money, army, and then provinces had the rest, which was not much back then because, you know, the kind of state that we know now didn't really exist. But the idea was that, like, you know, the powers, you know, whatever else might come along in history should belong to provinces, right? So this is why it's provincial jurisdictions. And what happened is that there was the 29 economic crisis and the role of government started to change. And then the federal government decided that unemployment insurance would be their responsibility. And then from there, it created a precedent and federal government got bigger and bigger and started to do, let's, you know, do things together as a national government. So every time there's been a crisis in Kenyan history, federal government has come in and trying to get bigger. And then, yes, it creates overlaps. And it's really interesting for me as a Quebecer because I'm hearing, yeah, this, those are national issues. We should hear dealing them with them nationally. Why is there so much overlap? People should be working on them together. And the way I was taught history is that we should be dealing with them actually provincially and the federal government should be 
basically printing our money and not much else. And it's interesting how, it, for me, it's always super exotic when I'm hearing people calling for the federal government to do more every time they think an issue is important. Just why do you think that the federal government should be in charge of it just because you think the issue is important? It's for me a question mark that I have that comes to nationalism and the fact that you feel Canadian, therefore the, <laughs> the government you identify with, the witch should be in charge of it, which has nothing to do with division of power. And I feel like that emotional reflex, maybe because you guys have been like forced to, <laughs> to sing the national anthem, which is also for me a super exotic process. Like every day before school, you guys have been brainwashed. And as a result of that, there's like this reflex for centralization that for me comes out of nowhere. And this is sometimes why even people on the left in Quebec are at odds with the way that liberals and the NDP are having, you know, proposing policies because they think everything that's important should be a federal responsibility, which doesn't make sense from a constitutional standpoint. So here we are with a lot of the federal government you know, trying to be paternalistic and doubling over what provincial government uh, responsibilities are just because it's important, so it should be federal. <laughs> and, and you guys complain that it's a mess and you're like, yeah, but federalism should be different. And that's what every Quebecer, both federalist and sovereignist, has been trying to tell you for like generations. But that's going to be the end of my rant. I'm very glad that Emily had a mic drop <laughs> moment in, in my last episode. I'm very glad this happened. But I also want to say, like, I feel like the next time a politician decides not to actually solve a problem that's at their doorstep and say, no, it's the federal government's responsibility or, you know, it's the municipality's responsibility, we should just, like, give them a T-shirt or, like, a banner that says, I committed federalism. Like, just to remind people that they did not do their jobs. Can I just say, I didn't grow up in this country. None of what you do makes sense to me. <laughs> It's true. I, I concur. I concur. I think Canada as a concept doesn't make sense to this day. Um, Stuart, is there anything you want to add or are you good? <laughs> oh, God, no. I'm not going to try and top that. That's like, that was like the plug it into my veins rant from Emily. I loved it. Madam Speaker, on a point of order, I hope if you seek it, you would receive unanimous consent for a motion of commendation and thanks for your service uh, as Speaker uh, of this great podcast. As humble backbenchers, we are completely reliant on you acknowledging us in the House, taking us seriously, giving us the opportunity to speak to our fellow backbenchers and also the public. It's a job you've done incredibly well over these last I don't know, pandemic years, it feels like a lifetime. We know that the public is as fond of you as we are, and uh, we wish you all the best with what comes next. Um, not a point of order, but it has been uh, the privilege and an honor to serve as your Madam Speaker. And I'm going to miss you guys, but we'll hope that you guys will continue to be raucous in your various online platforms. Uh, Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Stuart? Well, I know there's a no-crying policy, but I... <laughs> I thought of a way this might make you cry for different reasons, uh, but it did occur to me, we saw the demise of Liz Cheney in the U.S. We're seeing kind of a resurgence of Donald Trump. Pierre Polyev is running, probably going to win the CPC leadership. And I was imagining that in 2025, it's not, maybe not likely, but it's certainly possible that someone living in Toronto wakes up on some morning in 2025 and the Premier of Ontario is Doug Ford. The Prime Minister of Canada is Pierre Polyev. And the American president is once again Donald Trump. 
And I was thinking that's kind of a crazy scenario that just occurred to me is like within the reasonable parameters of speculation now. Um, so I didn't mean to bring the mood down for a mainly progressive <laughs> podcast, but it's worth considering. Um, not a point of order, but Stuart, we have one rule. Good things only on the show. Like, we can't manifest <laughs> evil things. <laughs> yeah. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Emily? I'm turning 34 in two weeks, and I'm starting to have a couple of gray hair. And I'm wondering if my career in television is about to be over. <laughs> uh, it's already a lot that I'm wearing my hair natural as a black woman. I have an afro on the air. It's already something that has crushed a lot of women's career. But now some of that afro might be turning gray over the next couple of years. And I'm worried about my status as a backbencher. Will you still have me, Madam Speaker, if I have a couple of gray hair? That's my question. That's my point of order. Listen, if I was still the host of the backbench, I would create a mandate that we all dye our hair gray <laughs> and we all do this conversation on video and air it on the national broadcaster. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. Um, what are you doing here, Raisa? And what is your point of order? <laughs> <laughs> well, like Emily said, it's, it doesn't seem to be a great time to be a woman in journalism right now. We know that some people are getting rape and death threats. Gray hair appears to be a problem, even if it looks really fucking amazing. And some women just aren't being paid for the actual number of hours they're selflessly pouring into their work or they're being belittled or undermined or condescended to. And this obviously sucks for many reasons. If you're, you're not standing up for female or racialized journalists or protecting them or respecting them, the quality of Canadian journalism suffers. You know, the, the political voices we bring into our work no longer have a platform. People ultimately have a worse understanding of, of politics in this country if we are being pushed out. But we already know all of this. So I feel like I need to speak to men in terms that they understand. <laughs> Without women in this industry, you will never have an office party again. No one in your newsroom is ever going to wish you a happy birthday ever again because it's only women who remember that shit. Did something important happen in your life? When did you get a card or did someone in your office send you flowers? That will never happen again because do you know who's behind that? It's a woman. So in sum, please support the woman that you work with in journalism if you ever want to understand how this country works or be eat subpar grocery store birthday cake in a newsroom ever again. Also, microwaves wouldn't be clean without women and dishwashers wouldn't be loaded without... I'm just saying the office kitchen or exactly. even your home office kitchen would be in a state of disarray without women. I mean, not a point of order, but I would like to extend that call, not just to journalism, but to all sectors, including politics. Just treat women well. It's not that hard. Point of order. What is your point of order, David Mosgrop? And also, what are you doing here? Is this not the Pierre Polyev rally? <laughs> I just saw a bunch of whites coming down the street and I just instinctively followed them and figured that's where they were going. I'm so sorry. There is two brown women, one black woman, and one brown dude beg to differ on the Zoom call. Okay, so not a Pierre Polyev rally. <laughs> what a great segue into my uh, point of order. Uh, one of the things I've noticed over the course of your time here listening to this podcast is a distinct lack of of time for reactionaries and uh, extremists and just day-to-day -day idiots. And instead, I've been coming here and what I've been getting, much to my shock, are sustained in-depth explorations of policy issues as they relate to 
the real lives of Canadians without platforming all the nonsense. And I was just wondering, how dare you <laughs> not give voice to the worst among us? Because if we don't, there's a real risk they might start to get angry. And so I just wanted to check in on that. The thing is, they really don't want to talk to me. I've done so many episodes about, you know, what they think and what they feel and what they believe. What is a host meant to do? My point of order is ultimately thank you and a request that um, you keep doing what you're doing one place or another with the gray hair and all. <laughs> Not a point of order, but I can confirm there's three strands somewhere working on it. <laughs> Did I hear Mosscrop say the worst among us? My ears are burning. <laughs> Jason Markasov, what are you doing here? Fatima my speaker, I have a point of order. I'm, I'm rusty at this, but hi. Hi, Jason. I couldn't not come back for, for this one. My point of order is uh, similar to uh, Murad's. Uh, I seek unanimous consent uh, from the Assembly in recognition of uh, the incredible year that it has been on uh, Fatima Syed's The Backbench. Let us... Uh, Stay here for an awkward 20-second moment of silence. <laughs> Remember all the good times. Starting now. I think 20 seconds might be too long for a podcast episode. Shh. Not a point of order, but while all six of you are here, can I just say that it's been an absolute pleasure to learn from you guys and really dissect the big politics issues. We don't do that enough in this country or in the world generally. So I'm so glad to have shared this virtual space with y'all and um, for all the fun moments. It has been a total joy to bring you all to the backbench. I hope I've earned the privilege of all of your time. I've grown up talking about politics. It's a staple of most of my relationships, everyone from my father to some of my best friends. Over the years, we've tried to dissect big, big policy and political issues around the dinner table, at restaurants, in parks, on hikes. I really do believe that politics is one of the most important things in our lives. It can make or break any of us. If you're an immigrant, if you're a refugee, an asylum seeker, a business person, a student, a mother, a worker in any industry, what politicians decide in any level of government will have an impact on you. It's not just about who you like and who you dislike. It's about what will help the most of us. We really do need to elect leaders that care about that. And we also need to be part of the political process at every step of the way so that they are reminded why they are serving in the office that they were appointed to. Here are a few of my favorite moments. I'm not in the mood to celebrate Canada Day this year. It's my sister-in-law's birthday. I'll celebrate that. So my point of order is, can we put it back in the Pandora's box? Can we, like, not have an election right now? The Conservative Party is filled with bedwetters. You're not really allowed to dislike anybody or say anything mean, so I'm just wondering if uh, the government now is really going to cancel Twitter. I'm happy we got to let you rant for once. Madam Speaker, I got a point of order. What's your point of order, Jessica? When the NDP surge comes, 
Can we make sure not to say Orange Crush this time around as, as the media <laughs> and instead use Jugmentum or Sensation? That's worse than Orange Crush. <laughs> if O'Toole becomes the momentum, is it Omentum? <laughs> Omentum, I think, maybe sounds best. I've been blocked by the block. So that should tell you all you need to yeah, know. Yeah, it does about tell me something. No, well, hold on. That does tell me something. Uh, reduce, reuse, recycle. <laughs> Why are you getting mad? At tr- like, what do you want? You want tr- you want Jagmeet to spend like tons of emissions to go back to that same damn lake and log that canoe over uh, and take that picture again with this photographer? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I can explain the chaos. I want to quickly thank everyone who ever had anything to do with the show. Their names are going to be in the outro. They know who they are. I want to give a special thanks to Tiffany Lam. There's not that many non-white, young, immigrant, political anchors in this country. So to all the listeners who welcomed me into their ears and brains, thank you so much. And I'm extremely grateful to the teachers who sent me notes saying that they were assigning our shows to their class. That meant everything and and more than I can say on the show. Thank you for listening. On that note, let's adjourn. That's it from me on the backbench. In two weeks, we'll all find out what comes next for this show and who the next host is. You can send your questions, your concerns, your rants, your thoughts. You can email the show backbench at candleland.com. The show is also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can email me, Fatma B. Sayed at gmail.com. You can find my work at the Narwhal, where I'll be covering the climate emergency in Ontario. Where do people follow your work? Emily. Detour, the new podcast in Canada Land that's on the main feed of Canada Land. For now, we're going to have our own independent channel as well. And Le Devoir for, for my columns, as well as the Montreal Gazette. And Twitter, if you just want to chat. <laughs> just keep reading and listening to Emily. She will make us all better political engagers. <laughs> Murad, where do people follow your work? Uh, I write at thelogic.co, and I'm on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-A-G-M. Follow for more rants. And Stuart, where do people find you? I'm at thehub.ca and Stuart X Thompson on Twitter. Where there will hopefully be more sports content? This episode was produced by Noor Azriyeh with additional production by Tristan Kappa-Keone. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. The music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you around soon. Okay, I did it. I mean, I cried a little bit, but I didn't like cry, cry. So I did it.